Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohim, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Benina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And a rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The men Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me by my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there.
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I think a question we ask a lot as we survey the world around us is how should Christians living in the world today live? Uh, we live in a country where Christianity is in deep decline. Uh, you look at a number of once prominent theologians, once prominent pastors, once prominent churches and denominations, uh, which are increasingly bending the knee to ungodly societal pressures. We live in a world where there is a relentless attack on the family, where marriage has been redefined and attacked from every angle. Uh, we live in a world uh, where uh, there is a, an increasingly loud argument for even children to undergo the worst kind of radical, unalterable, irreversible chemical and surgical mutilations. And people call this evil good and insist that it's good. We live in a world where even when there has been an overturning of a court decision about abortion, um, even in most conservative states, uh, they can't get laws passed even requiring infants born alive after a botched abortion to, be, to receive medical care. Uh, that those infants are just supposed to be left out, exposed, and left to die. We live in a world with wars and rumors of wars. We live in a world where politics are increasingly ugly, and we live in a world where the church is coming under increasing pressure from a number of areas with more seemingly on the horizon. Now, this list could go on and on. You know the list. You know all of the pressures that we're facing. But the reason I bring it up is because our situation is not too much different from what the people were facing in the days of 1 Samuel. Remember the context of where 1 Samuel falls. 1 Samuel falls right at the end of the book of Judges. Do you remember what happens at the end of the book of Judges? It's one of the most debauched, horrifying scenes in the entire Bible. What happened at Sodom and Gomorrah was repeated and actually carried out where a young woman was raped through the night until she was dead. And then in response to that, the man who had supposedly been caring for her but had pushed her out the door to be abused in this way, dismembered her body and sent the 12 pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel to call them to enter into a civil war against the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this wasn't some ruthless band of Gentiles. These were Israelites who had committed this crime, and Israel was in the midst of civil war. It was a terrible time where there were wars and rumors of wars and immorality on every front. It was a time where they needed salvation. It was a time where no matter where they looked for it, they could not find salvation. Again, it's a time not too different from ours. Well, if Israel was in dire need of salvation, if we are in dire need of salvation today, what hope do we have? What hope did they have? It's in this context that the book of 1 Samuel speaks not only into a story of, of an ancient world, but speaks directly to us tonight. Our big idea tonight as we consider this first part of this great story about how God will not only bring about salvation, but particularly how God is going to raise up a king through whom he will save the world, at first in a small form through David and then ultimately through Jesus Christ. Our big idea today is that salvation comes from the Lord. Salvation comes from the Lord. Three parts to our sermon tonight. First of all, looking for salvation. Looking for salvation. In verses 1 and 2, the introduction here. And second, longing for Samuel. In verses 3 through 20, longing for Samuel. And then number three, lending over a son, lending over a son. 
in verses 21 through 28. Well, let's start in the first two verses. Looking for salvation. We have an introduction here. Again, the, the very last verse of Judges, which if you're reading in, in the Hebrew Bible, Ruth is actually put somewhere else. So Ruth is, is um, um, in, in the, the order that the Jews would have read this, this would have gone straight from the last verse of Judges 21 to 20, verse 25 to, to, to what we're reading here today. And that last verse of Judges, you may know it, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Again, it was a time of deep spiritual apostasy, of chaos, of confusion. And again, this sounds very familiar to those of us living today. So it's important to have that context, though, because when we come to this story and we read about this woman, Hannah, who has such great faith and prays this great prayer and God gives her a son, we are not reading merely a story about a woman who receives an answer to her prayer. Again, we are reading rather a story about how God is going to give a king to his people. In those days, there was no king in Israel. That was a problem. There was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. This is a story about how God will give a king over his people, and through a king, how God will give salvation to his people. And so we read in something that seems fairly innocent. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim. Now, this phrase, there was a certain man, this is actually the exact same introduction for, that we got back in the book of Judges, chapter 13, verse 2, that introduced Samson's father. Samson is a, a major turning point in the book of Judges, uh, not for the better, for the worse. Uh, but we introduced uh, Samson that way, and we introduced Saul later in 1 Samuel 9, verse 1. There was a certain man, and we read about them. Now, Elkanah doesn't have sort of the negative connotations that either Samson or Saul does, but this phrase is signaling to us that more is going on than first meets the eye. This wasn't just a random man. This was an important man who will play an important part in this story. Something is happening yet, but we don't know yet what it is. Well, then in verse 2, we read that this man, Elkanah, that he had two wives. Uh, now, um, polygamy was something that was common in biblical times. However, it was contrary to the original design for marriage of one man and one woman in marriage for life until death do them part. That was God's original design for marriage back in the Garden of Eden. And uh, polygamy is introduced fairly early on in the line of Cain. You may remember reading about Cain's um, ancestor Lamech who has two wives and he was an incredibly wicked man. He murders a man just for striking him. He's way more violent than he should be. And he also has those two wives. But here we see the same problem is going on. And whenever we read about polygamy in the Bible, we're always seeing deep problems, deep strife. Sin is not too much farther behind. And here the strife in this marriage, uh, which is compounded by this polygamy, uh, the particular pressure point is the fact that Hannah has no children. Penina has children, but Hannah has no children. Now, infertility has always been painful throughout history, but so much more so in Israel. Because in Israel, everything revolved around the covenant promises of offspring, of a seed that God was promising to raise up for his people, for their salvation. And so they were always looking for offspring, always looking for children. So it's a particularly painful point when people could not have children. And so there were rival wives. One wife had children while the other wife didn't. The same problems arose in Abraham's marriage with Sarah. Sarah couldn't have children, so Sarah gave Hagar, her maidservant, to Abraham. That compounded the problems. Rachel was the beloved wife of Jacob, 
but he was tricked into also marrying her sister Leah. Leah could have children at first, Rachel could not. Again, this is a source of great strife in the marriage. And just as in those stories, there are problems. And just as in those stories, the children are extremely important. And so this child will be incredibly important. Samuel will be the last of the judges, one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. But her story, as painful as it is, becomes the powerful backdrop to God's story of raising up a king for his people. And the power of God is seen here, particularly in the way that Hannah is so weak and so exposed to ridicule and shame. As Dale Ralph Davis writes, God's tendency is to make our total inability his starting point. God begins to work where we have no ability to do anything. That way God gets all the credit. But God's using Hannah's inability to have children also had another purpose, to also reveal God's glory. Another commentator, Richard Phillips, writes this. He says, Hannah's barrenness corresponds to Israel's spiritual state. Just as Israel is spiritually fruitless, spiritually barren, so Hannah cannot yet have children. But it's important as we think about that connection that there's a theme emerging that we're going to see throughout the book of 1 Samuel. That appearances are not what they seem. That man judges by outward appearances, but the Lord judges according to the heart. And that's going to be explicitly stated in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, in relation to David and his brothers. God does not choose as a king the one who looks most impressive. God chooses according to the heart. And so here outwardly, by appearances, Hannah is not the one who should be chosen to bring about this salvation, bringing about the birth of this child who would become a prophet, who would anoint both kings of Israel. But yet she is the one that God is going to use so that God gets all the glory. Again, we're in a time where people are looking all over for salvation. And they're looking for it in all the wrong places. You know, it's very hard to find things. Maybe you know this. Maybe you've lost a few things in your times. There's actually an interesting survey done in 2017 that the average American spends 2.5 days out of every year looking for lost items. And not only that, but U.S. households spend $2.7 billion every year just in replacing things that they have lost. You owned it, you lost it, you spent $2.7 billion replacing it just last year alone. You collectively, of course. Uh, there's also a booming um, market for device location technology, the Apple AirTags or uh, the Tile devices. Um, I bought a Tile because uh, my children had been misplacing my Bluetooth earbuds uh, once in a cabinet tucked in their bathroom for a while, uh, once uh, lovingly in the trash can they put it. And so I, I wanted to put this device on it so that I could find it later. But you know what's so interesting is I bought this because I was frustrated that my children were losing things, but as soon as I had a device to find these things, I find myself using it all the time to find these things that I couldn't find earlier. It also helps to, me to find my phone and things like that. Have you ever noticed that usually when you cannot find something, it's because you're thinking, okay, I was here and I was here, and you start looking in these two places, and you look in those two places again and again, and it's only when you, oh yeah, I was also over there. And you go look in that other room where you realized you were, and that's where that thing is. You, you can't find something lost when you're looking in the wrong spot. 
And in the book of Judges, carrying over in the book of 1 Samuel, we're seeing the people of Israel are constantly looking in the wrong places, looking in this world, and again and again in this world, in relationships, in marriages, in the prospect of, of children, potentially, in, in, in worshiping false gods. All of these places they think will bring them salvation, and it's not getting them any closer. But in this time of spiritual darkness, God's people are in such desperate need for salvation. Again, in the end of Judges, we had a man appointing a priest over his own household, worshiping idols, going to civil war. All of this, they couldn't find salvation, but where then should they look? Well, it can't begin with something extraordinary. What God is going to do is going to raise up someone ordinary. This woman who can have no children, and he's going to use this woman and her heartfelt prayer for a son. And so this brings us to the next section in verses 3 through 20, where uh, Hannah is longing for Samuel, longing for Samuel. Now, one commentator notes that as we get into verse 3, and then as we look at the end of this uh, chapter in verse 28, it's really interesting how worship bookends the chapter. This begins and ends in verses 3 and 28, with worship. That's important. Even though a lot of people were looking in the wrong place for salvation, this family, even though they had their problems and they had deep problems, they were nevertheless committed to presenting themselves annually to worship and sacrifice the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. That was where the place where the, the tabernacle was. Now notice that it says that they went to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh in verse 3. This is the first place that the, word, the phrase Lord of hosts appears. It means the Lord of armies. It's, it's this idea of, of God coming with his great armies in vengeance. It captures the great need of God's salvation, that he's going to come with his might and his power and his armies. And this is the God to whom they went to worship, Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of armies. Well, in verses 4 through 7, we read more about the tragic circumstances of Hannah. She was the favored wife, as Rachel had been the favored wife of Jacob, but she was provoked, as Hagar had provoked Sarah uh, Abram's, uh, in Abram's family. But we have to note a couple of phrases here in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. The text very clearly says that it is the Lord who closed her womb. And then verse 7, we have to also look at the deep pain this caused. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. The Lord is in control over this situation. However, this is deeply, deeply painful for Hannah. But we, what are we to make of this? Well, the fact that it is the Lord who closed her womb should tip us off to the fact that the Lord is already at work. Tip us off to the fact that the Lord is already concocting something. The Lord is at work. He's building something. He's preparing for something. He is the one who is at work in this situation, even in the midst of Hannah's great pain, and he sees her pain. Now, I, I know that this grief over a lack of children has touched members here, and I want to be so sensitive to that. And I know there's also a, a group meeting with a, with, over grief, over a desire to see prodigal children come home. These are difficult times. But when we remember that the Lord is in control, 
when we remember that his providential care over us is not a static thing, either you fell on the right side or the wrong side, and that's just the way it is, that's God's providence at work. No, no, that's not the way it works. God's providence is not passive and static. God's providence is active. God is already at work. So what's the Lord up to? How do we discern what God is doing in his providence here? Well, this gets us to verse 8. There's a fascinating question. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, well, it's, it's kind of a ham-fisted question. Um, it was a foolish question for him to ask, but it's a really fascinating question what he actually says because it's not quite translated literally. He says, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? Now, our translations have, and why is your heart sad? But literally, it is, why is it evil to your heart? And then when he says, am I not more to you than ten sons? Literally, he says, am I not more good to you or better to you? But, but I want to bring out that good word. It's a question of good and evil here. Elkanah's question is, is touching on uh, two terms that in the Bible are associated with God's wisdom. All the way back from the Garden of Eden, remember there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then you may think to the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph looked at everything that had happened in his life and he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God was active in the midst of my suffering, Joseph said. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So Elkanah is grappling with more than just something to try to make his wife feel better in the moment. He's grappling with the deep question of God's wisdom and God's providence, but what he's doing, and this is what makes it somewhat hand-fisted and in very poor taste, he's pointing to himself. He's not pointing hand to the Lord. He's pointing to himself. Am I not more good to you than ten sons? But it's interesting. I don't know if there's this conversation or if whether this has been brewing in her heart, but Hannah seems to take this. Then in the next verse, Hannah goes and takes this where she should take this question. She goes to God in prayer. And in her prayer, she is deeply distressed and she's pouring her soul out to the Lord and weeping bitterly. And she vowed a vow, verse 11, and said, O Lord of hosts. Now, if we're just talking about a sentimental story about a woman trying to receive a child, why would she need to summon the God of the armies? There's more going on here than meets the eye. But she prays, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant, verse 11, and remember me, remember me, that's covenantal language, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. She's vowing that her son will be a Nazarite, where no razor will touch his head his whole life. Now, that would not have been required. Uh, Nazarite vows were temporary. You would start one, and you would not cut your hair until you ended your Nazarite vow, and then you would cut your hair. But he, like Samson, again, there's a connection here, back to the days of the judges, he, like Samson, is to be a Nazarite all his life. That's the vow that she makes. And she asks the Lord of hosts to remember her in this. Well, once again, in verses 12 through 16, we have judgment according to outward appearances. Eli the priest is there, and he's watching what she's doing, and she's judging her out, or he's judging her outwardly. 
And the, what he takes away from this, now this is again one of the spiritual leaders of Israel. He should know what it looks like when someone is pouring out their soul to the Lord. But the most he can make of it is that she is drunk. That's the state of Israel's corrupt spiritual leadership. He rebukes her for this. He cannot recognize that this is a woman who truly believes in the Lord and is going to the Lord in faith. But after Hannah gently corrects this wayward priest, Eli then blesses her and blesses her and tells her, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And when she receives that priestly benediction, she goes and she is happy and she eats finally and her face was no longer sad. And then we read in verse 20 that in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel. For she, she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the name Samuel uh, probably means God is his name, like God is God's name, God is his name. Um, in, in Hebrew this would sound like Shmuel, Shmuel. And I say that so you can hear how close it sounds to the word to ask, Sha'al, Shmuel, Sha'al. You can hear there's a very close, uh, it sounds uh, one like another. There's no M in, in the word for, to ask, um, but there is in, in Samuel's name. So Shmuel, because he was asked of the Lord, Sha'al, and his name probably means God is his name. I, 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 I tell you that not because there's going to be a quiz, but because that word ask is very important in the next section. So I want to make sure you're prepared for it. We need to stop here, though, and think about, uh, before we sort of see how all of this resolves and what Hannah does with this, we need to think about the power of prayer. You know, I mentioned this morning in one of my sermon illustrations uh, that I was a zoo chaperone this past summer. Um, and on this trip, uh, I had three little boys with me that I was in charge of them, trying to make sure they weren't wandering away. But one of these little boys desperately wanted to see the birds in the aviary. Now, you may remember this past summer, there was a lot of bird flu around. And so if you went to the zoo, they actually had taken the birds off display and put them somewhere to keep them safe from all the people who were uh, going in who may have been inadvertently carrying avian flu. They didn't want those birds to, to be killed. Uh, but this child... Um, he must have asked me 50 times if we could go to see the birds. It was very clear. Every time that thought flitted through his mind, he'd just, he'd just say it. Can we go see the birds? And then he'd, I'd, my job was just to distract him. Hey, let's go see some lions or something. And, and every time it would pop back into his head, can we go see the birds? Every time. Now, this was taxing, but we got through it. Um, no birds were seen. We tried to point birds, you know, hey, look, there's a pigeon or something. Um, but... The best we did, the best we could, but, you know, as I reflected on it, I thought, what a persistent child. What a model of persistence in prayer. When things pop into my mind, is my first thought to go to the Lord in prayer, or do I stew on them? Do I sit on them? Do I turn them over and worry them and become anxious about them in my head? Or like this child, as soon as it pops to my head, am I going to the Lord in prayer? It's such a perfect model for the kind of prayer that we should be bringing to the Lord. And this is Hannah. She knew to do nothing else but to bring this request to the Lord. And the Lord heard her and answered her prayer. In a nation that was so deeply corrupt, here is one woman who believed the Lord's promises and went to him and poured out her heart to him and received what she asked for. Hannah's longings that she brought to the Lord in prayer had been fulfilled. She now has a son. Just as the Lord remembered Hannah, Hannah now remembers her own vows that she had made. She made a vow to the Lord and she needs to keep it. 
But now we're going to see whom does Hannah love more? Does she love the giver or does she love the gift more? Does she just say that she loves the Lord in order to get what she wants, but then would be unwilling to give over her son? Or will she fulfill this vow? And so we come to this third section, lending over a son, in 1 Samuel 1, verses 21 through 28. Now when we get to verses 21 through 23, it's very important to see that once again there's wisdom language that we see in verse 23. Uh, she says she's not going to go as soon as the child is winged, then she will bring him. But then in verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Very literally, this is do what is good in your eyes. Now that's a dangerous thing to say. How did the book of Judges end? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And Elkanah is saying to his wife, only do what is good in your eyes. That's a dangerous thing. It's wisdom to be able to do what's right in one's eyes, but it can be wisdom that is false wisdom, folly, or it can be God's wisdom, it be true wisdom. We should do what's right in the eyes of the Lord, not what's right in our own eyes. But it's interesting, Elkanah gives a provision here. He says, only, wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. Now, I think this is one of the key verses in this passage, the key statements, only may the Lord establish his word. Because it's unclear why he would say this in this juncture. He's probably saying this to remind her of her vows, but if that's so, why would he ask, or why would he say, may the Lord's word be established? He should say, may your vow be established. May you bring to pass what you promised that you would do. But he says, only may the Lord's word be established. It seems that Elkanah now realizes, after everything that's happened, after his wife miraculously, after so long, after she's prayed and, and the priest blessed her, after this she finally has this son, it seems that he now recognizes the Lord is at work. The Lord had been at work. The Lord had been at work when he was the one who closed Hannah's womb, and he continues to be at work with the coming of Samuel. And so Elkanah wants to get out of the way, and he says, only may the word of the Lord be established. May the Lord establish his word. And so in verses 24 through 27, then we come to the, the key moment. Will Hannah renege on her vows? She doesn't. When um, she had weaned um, Samuel, she takes him up to, the, to the, the tabernacle. And it's interesting in verse 24, uh, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull. If you look, um, there's actually um, some different uh, ways to translate this. Um, in certain documents, this is a three-year-old bull, but in the original uh, Hebrew text, it's um, three bulls. Most people don't think that she would have brought three bulls because that would have been, as one commentator puts it, a staggering amount of wealth. Um, but this commentator, uh, Richard Phillips, he notes that if you, if you read Numbers 15, verses 8 through 10, that tells you how you were to fulfill vows. And if you offered a bull, you were supposed to offer three-tenths of an ephah of flour with any bull that you offered. So if she brings a full ephah of flour, which she does as part of her sacrifice, um, and she brings three times three bulls, so three bulls times three-tenths of an ephah, and that gets her to nine-tenths of an ephah of flour, it seems like she just rounded up to bring a full ephah of flour to correspond to three bulls. She probably brought a staggering amount of wealth. This was a costly sacrifice for her to make, but the greatest sacrifice she had to make, of course, 
was to give over her son. She was leaving her son in the tabernacle to be brought up in the tabernacle as a prophet to God. So how does she respond to this? Well, as, as I read verse 26, I hear joy. You can almost hear her breathlessness as she repeats the phrase, my Lord. Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, she said, I have lent him over to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now, this is an important phrase for us to understand what's going on here, because this is, this is where I, I think the crux of this passage is, and this is where I get my big idea that salvation comes from the Lord. Uh, if you look at the end of verse 27, the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Uh, literally, my ask that I asked of him. There's that word again, sha'al. My ask that I asked of him. But then this word for lend, it's actually the same word for ask. But Hebrew has a way of taking certain verbs, uh, like the verb to ask, and if ask is just one way of just saying it straightforwardly, to ask for someone to give me something, well, then there's sort of a causative way to say this, to cause someone to give me something, to, or is to, uh, is to lend. This is kind of hard to explain if you're not familiar with, with, with Hebrew. Uh, but the idea is, if I ask you for something, what am I doing? I'm asking you to give me, to some, give me something. But if I then give you something, it's though the re relationship has been reversed. There's a wordplay here. What Hannah is doing is she's saying she asked, and the thing that she asked for is given to the Lord. And that's the wordplay here that's lending. What all of this means, without getting too technical about Hebrew grammar, is that she's acknowledging that salvation comes from beginning to end from the Lord. Don't look in your false gods. Don't look in appointing a household priest like they did at the end of the book of Judges. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's this sense that's captured in Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We started this passage trying to ask, where would we find salvation? And the very end, Hannah shows us where it is. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Well, how should we apply this? Well, because salvation comes from the Lord, one of the things that we see so clearly laid out here is the need to pray for God's salvation. This morning I talked about preaching as an ordinary means of, of God's giving us his grace, an ordinary way in which God shows us his favor. Through the proclamation of the word, God gives Christ Jesus to us. That's the, the pipeline we have to our Savior, the word of God preached to us in the gospel. But what this passage is showing us is another ordinary means of God's grace. It's prayer. God promises to give us himself. God promises to give us Christ Jesus through prayer. We see this all over the scriptures. Jeremiah 29, verses 12 through 13. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And then in Joel 2, verse 32, uh, which was quoted in Romans 10, verse 13, which we read this morning, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
You know, one of the things we've been learning, I've been learning, I've been brought back a lot as in the study of the Gospel of Matthew, is how much Jesus is continuing to bring us back to our Father, particularly in prayer. It's no accident that Jesus teaches us to pray, our Father who art in heaven. Jesus wants to teach us through prayer to come to know our Father, and especially to know the love that our Father has for us, our Father who is seated in the heavenly places. And so what this passage is reminding us in 1 Samuel tonight is that we need to pray for this. As we look around the world, we see everywhere that there are problems, everywhere there is evil. And yet one of the applications we also have to take from this is that we must not be afraid. Therefore, have no fear of them. What we studied this morning is coming up again here. God is at work. And more so, Christ tells us, I have overcome the world, Jesus says. We look on the sufferings of our own life in the wider world and we see so much evil, but we cannot see the ways in which God is working everything out for good, for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. When others do things for evil, God does things for good. Now, was it good for Hannah's womb to be closed for so long? Well, in a vacuum, considered alone? No, that's not a good thing. But was God working this and everything else together for good? Yes. Together for Hannah's good. Together for Samuel's good. Together for the good of, of David. Together for the good of us. God was working all things together for good. What others mean for evil, God means for good. He works all things together for good. And just as Elkanah was asking this question about how do we know where there's good and evil and, and do what's good in your own eyes, this is reminding us that God alone knows these things. So how do we gain insight into how God is working? Well, by the word and prayer. As we come to the word and we're engaging with God by listening to his voice in, 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 in his word and, and listening to his word preached, we respond back with prayer coming up from our souls. Uh, by the way, you can feel free to pray along in the middle of sermons. Respond to the Lord silently in your hearts, just like Hannah did. Cry out to the Lord. That's the way you should be dialoguing with God in prayer. Because as we're dialoguing with God in his word and in prayer, back and forth, back and forth, God begins to pull back the curtain, not to answer all of our questions, not to clarify everything that he's doing, but he lets us to understand his heart, his character, his plans and his purposes. Some things certainly will be still kept from us. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And as we dialogue with God in word and prayer, just like Hannah did, crying out to the Lord, laying hold of his promises, as we do this, we more clearly see his plan taking shape. How do we live as Christians in a world that is so broken and fallen and sinful? We go repeatedly back to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us faith. Faith like a child that every time a need, a concern, a burden crosses our minds, we're instantly looking to you and asking for you to grant these requests. That by our impertinence, and that you would hear us as our loving Father who knows our needs even before we ask them. But most of all, Father, we pray for the salvation. The salvation that you were bringing about through this story 
ultimately through the anointing of David who would be the ancestor of our Lord Jesus Christ who would accomplish all things for us. Oh, we pray, give us faith in your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.